Okay, so today we're going to be looking at 1 Peter. The text is 1 Peter chapter 5. We're going to be considering an unusual topic, one that is not necessarily popular. It's a topic of humility. So would you please turn to your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5 and read with me from verse 5 to verse 7. We've dealt in the past few weeks on the subject of elders and it's interesting how Peter dovetails into this topic right after that, humility. So please, would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Because God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt you at the proper time, having cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares about you. How wonderful. Father, thank you for reminding us that you are the God who cares for us. There is no other God throughout all of history that ever showed concern for people, for the downtrodden, for the weak, for the disenfranchised, for the poor in spirit. Only one God, and that's you. And we praise you because your eyes run throughout the earth to show yourself strong on behalf of those whose heart is right towards you. And we come before you, O Lord, asking for grace, because without your grace, we cannot obey you, we cannot love you. We cannot love each other. We need your grace so we can please you. We need your grace to understand your word today. In the precious name of our Lord, we ask. Amen. Please be seated. So as I said earlier, we are looking at this topic, the topic of humility. And of course, I will not do it justice with one message, north, two, it is so vast, it is so beyond our comprehension. But I will try to give you what the Lord has placed in my heart. Humility is counterculture. Humility is a topic that we do not grasp very well. We understand pride. Uh, We have an easy time spotting pride in others. We have a very difficult time spotting pride in ourselves. There have been times I have been proudful and I have not spotted it at all. You can say that that's our blind spot. And yet we have no difficulty in spotting pride in other people. So that's why we need each other. We need others to tell us when we are acting in pride. Pride is easy to spot because it generates strife, jealousy, um, all sorts of bad vibes. True humility is much harder to find. It is a priceless gem. To make matters even worse, since it is not in our nature to be humble, we are prone to misconstrue this virtue and make humility something that it is not. 
So as naturally born sinners, there's very little chance of misunderstanding what pride is because we know it firsthand. We can, as I said, easily spot it in others. But genuine humility is very hard to discern because there's so much fake humility. Just like there's a lot of fake love. People have been told they, uh, that they are loved by parents and only to find out later on they were not loved. Told that they were loved by uh, their spouse only to find out down the road they were not loved. So there was a lot of fake love. We can deceive people into thinking that we love them when in reality we don't. There's a lot of fake love. And so in much the same way, there's a lot of fake humility. So how can we make sure that we do not get deceived? How can we know what true humility is? Well, thankfully, we have God's Word. And so I'm going to explain a little bit what humility is, where we find it, and then go actually into this passage of First uh, Peter chapter 5 from verse 5. So Peter tells the younger men to be subject to their elders, and all of you, meaning the entire church, so he transitions now. From the elders, he goes to, back to the church. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And that's why I've entitled this message, Humility, the only outfit that matters. You know, we're very concerned about um, our image and what to dress with and so forth. And, you know, especially if you go for an interview or <clears throat> if we are going to meet someone for the first time, making a visit, going to a wedding, we want to make sure that we're dressed accordingly. Well, here, Peter tells us the only outfit that really matters in life is humility. In fact, he exhorts the church to be clothed, right, to dress themselves with humility. So we need to know what this means. What is the reference point that we could have that shows us what true humility is? Well, the one person in Scripture that exemplifies, personifies, is the quintessential humble person is Christ himself. He is the full embodiment of humility. The full embodiment of humility. Jesus not only was humble while he lived on earth, because we all understand Jesus being humble while he lived on earth for the 33 years he was here, but he has always been humble. Before his incarnation, the Son of God was humble. After his ascension, he continues to be humble. Why? Because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It doesn't change. The thing is, his glory was veiled, but not his humility. Jesus Christ, in his kenosis, when he emptied himself, not of his deity, but of his privileges, of his rights, of his majesty, and left behind all of that, took off his robe of glory, he came down in the very same humility that he has while on his throne. He did not divest himself of his humility. Humility is the very nature of God. Now, some of you may be puzzled by that. I was when the first time I understood 
Christ's humility and the humility of the Godhead. I was floored by the topic. And some of you may be asking right now, did I hear correctly that God is humble? And yes, you heard very correctly. Without Christ's incarnation, though, we have a rather incomplete idea of humility. We have uh, passages in the Old Testament that put God's humility on display. Why is humility so important? Because God hates pride. In Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 to 19, we read how God detests pride. It says this, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, so it starts with pride, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who declares lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. Pride is the first in this list of seven sins mentioned, sins that God detests. He hates, he abhors. In fact, you could say that sin, or rather pride, is the soil in which all these sins germinate. Kill pride, and you will eliminate every one of these sins. Kill them all, only by killing pride. In fact, if you stop to consider each one of these sins, you will see Satan's job description. Since he is pride personified, Satan is the father of lies. He delights in murder. Jesus says that, that he was a murderer from the beginning. His heart constantly devises wicked plans. His feet run rapidly to do evil. When God asks Satan where he's been, he answers in the book of Job, I've been throughout earth, here and there. He slanders unceasingly. That's what the word Satan means, slander. He relishes spreading strife among the brethren. He is the accuser of the brethren. Satan is pride in action. So when we read this, this passage in Proverbs, we're seeing Satan's job description. So it's clear that there can be no pride in heaven, not even a tinge of it. Now this is hard for us to grasp because we are so accustomed to pride. It is part of our DNA and it's part of everyday life. We have glory and pride working together. So let's say I am bright at school. That intelligence is rewarded and I am proud. If I am a skilled soccer player like a Cristiano Ronaldo, well, it's just normal that that glory, that, that all that attention is accompanied with pride. Glory and pride go hand in hand. Power and pride go our brothers and sisters in this world. But this is not the case in heaven. In God's dwelling place, it's humility and glory. It's humility and power. And that is the mystery. While God is infinitely glorious, 
he is also incomprehensibly humble. On the throne, we have a humble God. He cannot but be humble. And those he befriends, like Moses, become humble. Yes, God sits on his throne of glory in all humility. For this reason, when Jesus says these words, he mentions this about himself, not because in time alone this is true, but always. When he says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. We always think that Jesus is humble in heart only while he's on earth. But once he's in heaven, that humility is gone. Absolutely not. Jesus, the second person of the Godhead, defines himself as humble. The Jesus that we see on earth did not change in his ascension. And since Jesus and the Father are one, it stands to reason that the three persons of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, are humble. We worship not only a glorious God, but an equally humble God. How wonderful. This is the mystery of the Godhead. Therefore, it is only in God that we find true humility. In Christ, that humility becomes manifest so that we can have a greater understanding of who God is. Jesus' display of humility is such a wonderful truth. If we go back to Psalm 113 for a moment and we read these fascinating words about the God of heaven before his incarnation, we read the Lord from verse 4. The Lord is high above all nations. His glory is above the heavens. So we know this. The heavens themselves are vast, right? We have the unobservable universe, it's called, which goes beyond our observable galaxy, the unobservable universe. Now, beyond the unobservable universe, we have the glory of God. Not God himself, but his glory. So his glory is above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God who is enthroned on high? And then it says, who looks far, far down to the heavens. So he's looking far from his throne to the heavens where the angels dwell. But then he doesn't stop there. He goes down, down to the earth. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the garbage heap to seat them with noblemen, with the noblemen of his people. What a powerful, powerful picture. If you consider for a moment Greek mythology, the Greek gods never were concerned about the plight of the people. They were more concerned about themselves and having them, their honor and their glory manifest so that people would understand who they were. But this God is unlike any God. He condescends. He sees. He goes down. And he purposely looks for those who are broken. Those who are 
it says here, in the garbage heap, the needy, the poor, and he raises them up. Why would God do that? Because he is humble. He is humble. Try to find one celebrity that will go to a favela, to those who are the, are the untouchables, to those who are really broken. One. And say to them, I want to honor you. Well, they'll help, right? They'll do different acts of philanthropy, and, and, and they want the world to know that they're doing those acts of philanthropy. Very rarely are people doing acts, humanitarian acts, because under the radar, because they don't want to be seen. That's rare. But all they do is acts of philanthropy. They're humanitarian acts. They help. But they'll never say, I want you to be honored. That's not in our nature. This is the God we serve. God is the only glorious being in this universe who raises the poor from the dust, lifts the needy from the garbage heap to seat them at his table. David himself acknowledges this truth, this unique quality in God when he says this. In 2 Samuel chapter 22, verse 36, you have given me the shield of your salvation and your gentleness made me great. The literal standard version translates this verse differently. It replaces the word gentleness with lowliness. So, you have given me the shield of your salvation. That means you've saved me over and over. And your lowliness has made me great. That's what it means. This is what David is saying. You took me from the sheepfold when I was a nobody. I was a teenager, the last of my father's house. You anointed me with oil. You then defeated my enemies, and you helped me in defeating those who were enemies of Israel. Not only were you content in doing that, but then you made me king of Israel. But then you didn't stop there. You made me the ancestor of the Messiah, because Jesus is called the son of David. So when David ponders on all of this, he says, why would God, who is all glorious, who is all powerful, be so concerned with me? Who is man, he writes in another psalm, that you should visit him, the son of man, that you should be concerned with him? Who, is, who are we? That this great God be so concerned with this infinitesimal dust. If the nations of the earth are like dust on a scale, that says in Isaiah, imagine how infinitesimal we are. And that God should be so concerned with the hair of our head, with our days, with our thoughts, and with our words. Why would God be so concerned? There's only one answer, David says, because God is humble. He's not only infinitely glorious, he is not only all-powerful and all-majestic, but he is equally humble. Imagine the thought of approaching this all-majestic God who is not only all-glorious, but equally humble on his throne. That is a mystery. That is so hard for us to comprehend. 
God's humility, however, breaks all barriers with the incarnation. It reaches its apex in the fact that Jesus becomes man. There we witness God's humility to the uttermost, far more glorious than any other manifestation that we see in the Old Testament. Paul, writing to the Philippians, says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, this is the kenosis, by taking the form of a slave, of a servant, a bondservant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. His humility breaks all barriers. Here we see that for undeserving sinners, God did the unthinkable. God was not content in making us great like he made David great. He went beyond with us. God's humility manifested itself toward hell-bound sinners because that's what we are. Hell-bound sinners and that God interposes himself between the judgment that we rightly deserve and the heaven that we don't deserve so that he comes in between and absorbs all the wrath and makes sure that we are, have a way to this glorious place called heaven. It's mind-boggling. It is unthinkable that this great God, the God of the universe, would do this. God the Son humbles himself, leaves behind his glory, his privileges, his rights, his majesty, and becomes a bondservant. And then dies the most barbaric death, and through his condescension, succeeds in making sinners worthy of judgment, fit for glory, fit to be seated at the table of God. Now understand that this concept of God, of being humble and humbling himself, was foreign in the days of Paul. Foreign. Aristotle, Socrates, Plato would never have talked about the humility of God. Never would they have understood this. That's why when the Greeks heard Paul, and heard the message of the gospel, they laughed him off because it was foolishness. The gods of the Greeks were powerful, beautiful, full of splendor. They were enchanting. But this God, he comes and is broken for us. He humbles himself to the point of dying for us. He serves when no one wanted to serve. This is the God we serve. This is the God of glory the God who is incomprehensibly humble. You cannot be humble, according to the Greeks, and powerful. You cannot be humble and glorious. Yes, they're right. No God can be humble and glorious. No human can be humble and gifted. Only one can, the God of heaven. He is all-powerful and incomprehensibly and wonderfully humble. So when we read that the God of heaven took an interest in the Hebrew slaves to save them with a mighty hand from Egypt, 
or when we read that the Son of God himself leaves his throne and comes as a bondservant and faces the most barbaric death and absorbs the wrath of God, humbles, humbles himself for the sake of sinners, it leaves us baffled. Who is this God that is both so powerful and so humble? Who is he that he is all glorious and yet so condescending? Who is he? The whole thing makes no sense. That the God of this vast universe is so humble leaves us in awe and mystified. As we read in Isaiah chapter 57, for this is what the high and the exalted one who lives forever whose name is holy, says, I dwell in a high and holy place. A place that is unreachable even by angels. And also, who does he dwell with? With the contrite and lowly in spirit. In order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. What a God. What an amazing God. And in Christ, this truth is wonderfully on display because with his life and death on the cross, this is exactly what Jesus does. And the Jews should have seen it. They should have seen by taking these verses in Isaiah and the one in the Psalm 113 and said, if this Jesus does this, isn't this God himself? But they could not see his glory. Their eyes were veiled. They only saw his humility, and that humility was not enough. The importance of humility. God is opposed to the proud, says Peter in verse 5, but his grace, it gives grace rather to the humble. Augustine Hippo, a bishop of Hippo said, humility is first, second, and third in Christianity. Without humility, you have nothing. You have an empty religion. And while we recognize that humility is priceless, it is also true that this virtue is one that Satan seeks to mimic. Just like he mimics love, he mimics humility. He tries to befuddle us, to confuse us, so that we don't understand what humility truly is. And if we have an incorrect understanding of humility, we will not be able to follow what Peter exhorts us to do, to clothe ourselves with humility. We will end up with an empty religion. We will end up with something that is a sham, fake, that is only artificial. So we've seen that humility is absolutely important. Without it, there can be no Christianity. There is only true humility in the triune God who is perfectly humble while being glorious. And that this virtue was uniquely and wonderfully put on display with Christ's incarnation and especially in his death on the cross. And since there is no pride in the Godhead, it follows that no speck of pride can be found in God's people. Pride will not go unchecked in God's people. Hence the words, God is opposed to the proud. God is opposed to the proud. God hates pride and rewards humility. This is the message of the entire Bible. Humility is not only a New Testament 
teaching. Read the Old Testament. You'll find it everywhere. We've read in Psalm 113 and Isaiah 57. But look at the book of Micah in chapter 6, verse 8. He has told you, mortal one, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with your God. We cannot walk with God unless we walk humbly. There is no place for pride. As I said earlier, Satan was cast out for one sin, one sin alone, pride. Humility, therefore, is the essence of our walk with God. This virtue was extolled in the New Testament and even more so in the New Testament. No other religion stresses humility as does the Christian faith. Now, some might say, no, I think other religions um, stress the importance of humility. Well, not really. Humility in Christianity is far different than humility in any other religion. Take Islam, for example. In Islam, humility is seen as respect, modesty, submission, and not being arrogant. I've already spoken about submission in another message. I will not elaborate on that one. And furthermore, you prostrate yourselves to the ground when you pray to acknowledge your lowliness before a great God. This is how humility is understood in Islam. Well, this is not the definition of humility according to God's word. Yes, respect and modesty are important, but they are not the heart of humility. I can be respectful and yet arrogant. I can be modest and yet proudful. If bowing before God is a sign of humility, then Jesus wasn't humble. Often we find them praying, standing, the disciples themselves We find them praying, standing, many times. Only in the Garden of Gethsemane do we see Jesus prostrate before his Father because he was so overwhelmed with the thought of being separated from God and dying on the cross. So now you see the confusion with regards to humility. If you were to speak to some Christians, the confusion is equally present. I have spoken to women who believe that to take abuse from their husband was a sign of humility. They refused to leave even when their lives were clearly in danger. Turning the other cheek was their answer to me to justify their decision. I imagine Moses going to God's people who were slaves in Egypt and telling them God wants to bring you out of Egypt, out of slavery. And they would answer back, nah, we want to be humble and stay right here. That's pure nonsense. So while we realize that humility is important and that without it there is no Christianity, we also need to acknowledge that the enemy has done an excellent job in muddying the waters. We need to have the correct understanding of humility lest we fall into error and deception. Verse 5, when reading this over and over, you younger men likewise be subject to your elders. As I said earlier, the topic of eldership dovetails into humility. Why? Why does Peter speak about humility after speaking to the elders? Because the elders, more than anyone else in the church, 
needs to walk in humility. They are to flesh out this virtue in their home, with their children, with their spouse, at work, in the church, members, wherever they are. In fact, verse 3, if you remember, says this, nor yet as domineering over those assigned to your care. You see, elders cannot be domineering. But by proving to be examples to the flock. How is an elder an example to the flock? He is an example with humility. That's what Peter could not understand. That's what the disciples did not understand. It was very hard for them. Over and over, Jesus had to take a child and say, do you want to be first? You've got to be last. You have to be like a child. And he just couldn't figure, oh, okay, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was so difficult. It's so difficult for us. So elders are the ones who have to grasp this truth and then flesh it out. They do so by over and over, repenting before a holy God and saying to God, Lord, I want you to humble me. And that is an unusual prayer. I've mentioned to you that I've prayed that prayer over and over. And I pray that prayer because God only humbles those he loves. He humbled Job because he loved Job. He humbled only in history those he loved. Look at Joseph. He humbled him, brought him right to prison, and exalts him because that's what love is. God humbles us because there's so much pride in us. There's so much arrogance in us, and that arrogance oozes out of us. So elders need to guard themselves against pride and walk humbly. And they do so by owning up to their sins right away. Owning up to their mistakes right away. Because we make mistakes as elders. And men need to do this in their homes. Owning up to their mistakes and their errors. Because their lives impact the church. A father impacts his house just like a mother impacts her children. Um, there is nothing more powerful in this world than a humble Christian. And a humble elder is a very effective elder. The more we walk humbly, and the more we bring glory to Christ. This is the unique outfit of Christians. This is what we are called to wear every day as believers. Humility is the outfit we are to wear on earth. And it is the outfit that we will be wearing in heaven. That is what it means when it says we are going to be like Christ. We're not going to be like Christ in his glory. Obviously, but we are going to be like Christ in his humility. We're going to be like Christ humbly. We will no longer have to battle pride, arrogance, conceit, haughtiness. They'll be far removed from us. Everything that is bad in our flesh will be removed once and for all, and we will be clothed with humility in heaven. And we will serve and walk with our God humbly. Isn't that beautiful? I look forward to that day. That's why God hates the presence of pride in his children. Each time he sees it, it is like seeing Satan's DNA in our soul. He abhors it. He detests it vehemently. He withdraws his grace from us when there's pride. I'll be speaking more about this next week. He seeks that we repent when it is there. Read 2 Samuel chapter 24. I encourage you to read it at home. And you'll see David, the beloved servant of God, the anointed one, the one that God used in a mighty way, the one 
who would be the ancestor of the Messiah. We see him in pride ordering Joab, his general, to take a census of the fighting men in Israel. And Joab at first flinches. He goes, O king, may God multiply the people of Israel, please. But God, uh, but Joab was ordered, you're going to go and you're going to count. You see, David wanted to flex his military might. But David couldn't, wasn't allowed to count the men of Israel because you only count what is yours. And the people of God did not belong to David. David was a servant, a king, but a servant of God. The people belonged to God. And so Joab goes through the land of Israel counting the men fit to go into army, into, into, into war. It was what any king would do. You want to know how many men you have. It made perfect sense, but not according to the word of God. A few days pass, and David begins to feel that something is wrong. Maybe because he was praying, and he sensed there was this coldness, because he was so intimate with God. Maybe he was trying to write a psalm, and he couldn't write it. He wrote many psalms. Who knows why? And he says, there's something wrong. And he realizes that it was his order that he had given to Joab. And he's penitent. He's broken about it. He realizes his sin. But God's anger began to burn. And it burned towards David and it burned towards Israel. 70,000 men were killed. The stoutest, the strongest, to show David, they are not yours, they're mine. Not even when he committed adultery did God do this. 70,000 men just for counting. Think about it. That's how much God hates pride. God is opposed to us when we walk in pride. What does humility look like in the church? Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Because pride can easily ape, mimic humility, we need to be sure what humility looks like in the body of Christ. Notice that humility is toward one another. It is not a stance, one of those stances of, you know, what you've seen in many pictures of saints of their head uh, leaning towards the right and, you know, with their hands clasped this way and just standing before God. That's not humility. Peter speaks of humility towards God in verse 6. When he says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, which we're going to be dealing with next week. But in verse 5, he speaks of humility being our garment, our attire toward one another. I need to be clothed with humility in my dealings with God's people. God looks for that. Now, to understand clearly what Peter is saying, we need to take into an account, look into an account uh, an incident in the life of Jesus. There are many verses that speak of Christ's humility, but there's one that showcases it in a remarkable way. And I'm sure some of you can already guess. It's found in John 13. In John 13, we read, and Jesus, knowing that the Father had handed all things over to him and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, he got up from supper. He laid his outer garments aside. He took a towel and tied it around himself. And then he poured water into the basin. And he began washing the disciples' feet 
and wiping them with the towel which he had tied around himself. I encourage you to read the entire chapter when you go back home. John 13, what a picture. Have you ever wondered why not one of the disciples got up to do this? There were 12 plus Jesus. Why not one of them got up to do something that was so necessary because they had come from dusty roads and their feet were caked with dirt? Why not one? Because washing the feet of a guest was the task of the lowliest of slaves. Even among slaves, there were ranks. And Jesus took the lowliest position. He was the only one that was humble. The others were not. They were chosen. They were privileged. They were blessed. They had cast out demons. They had healed the sick. They had done many miracles. They had preached the gospel. But no humility. No humility. Only one was humble in their midst. The Lord of glory. And before going to the cross, Jesus stood up and gave the disciples the lesson they would never forget. And if you read the steps that he did, Jesus put aside his outer garment. That's a picture of what he did in heaven. When Jesus left his throne, he put aside his outer garment of glory, his privileges, his majesty, his honor, the right to be served. That was, that's his right. That's not our right. It's his right. He put that all aside. And then it says he wrapped himself with a towel. That's a picture of Christ. Humbling himself and coming in our midst as a servant. I've come not to be served, said Jesus, but to serve. What a remarkable Lord. What humility. And then we see him, he washed the feet of the disciples. How did he wash us? He washed us by dying on the cross. He did the unthinkable. He absorbed the full wrath of God so that we could be forgiven, washed, and made fit for heaven. What a savior. See, when you come to Christ, you come as a sinner worthy of judgment. Never forget that. That's what we are. We're sinners worthy of judgment. But then realize this. Before you humbled yourself, before you humble yourself, rather, before a holy God, he humbled himself first before sinners. That's what he did. He humbled himself so that you would not have to be treated like Satan and be cast out into eternity away from the presence of God. He humbled himself to save you from hell. Don't belittle his gift. Don't belittle his humility. This is the mystery of the gospel. And it's fascinating that this gift has been revealed to us. He has opened our eyes to see his glory not fully, because it is incomprehensible, and is humility, and even there, not fully. We see it, and we walk on holy ground as we see it. We see this holy God, and this humble God, who loves us so, because he wants us to be with him in glory. What a Savior. What a Lord. Who am I to even speak about this? Who are we to even stop and ponder these truths? Why would he open our minds to let us understand this and then to encourage us, be clothed with humility toward one another? As Christ served the disciples, so we are called to serve one another. That's how humility looks like. It's not in a posture of meekness and, and before God like this. It is doing something. It is making ourselves available, our resources available, 
It is doing that which doesn't come naturally to us. It is going beyond our comfort zone. It is to serve others, those who are undeserving, those who are perhaps against us, those who criticize us, to do what Jesus does. That's why we're called to go and do likewise. To be clothed with humility is to be clothed like Christ clothed himself. He is the Lord of glory. He said to his disciples, you call me Lord, and that is what I am. And as I have done to you, now do to each other. That's humility. So when I greet a brother, when I go out of my way for someone, when I use my car to drive someone, when I call someone, when I'm concerned about people, when I pray for them, when I minister God's word to them, when I bake some food for them, whatever it is that you do for others, for no other reason than for Christ's sake, you are being clothed in humility. When they criticize you, when they don't acknowledge you, when they don't appreciate what you're doing, and you keep on doing it, that is being clothed in humility. That's what we're supposed to do, church. That's what we're called to do. Let's do it. Since he clothed himself in humility for our sake, let us clothe ourselves in humility for his sake. Let's pray. Lovely Lord, I thank you for this privilege of going through your precious word of just exegeting this passage found in 1 Peter. I pray, O Lord, that we would not only be hearers of your word, but doers of it, that we would please you. For your name's sake, I pray. And those who are here and do not know you, may they be struck by the wonder and the beauty of your humility and humble themselves right now before you to acknowledge their sins and acknowledge you as their Savior. I pray this for all of us, that there be no tinge of pride and that we'd be willing to receive correction from a brother, from a sister, from a child when that pride is visible in us so that we would humble ourselves. For you oppose, you are opposed to the proud, but you give grace to the humble. We pray this in the wonderful and precious name of our Lord. Amen.